A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. This week, that would be Sons of Ares Volume 1, written by Rick Hoskin and story by Pierce Brown. That's the entire full graphic novel, Volume 1, not just the first chapter, the whole dang thing. there this is cross and i'm pj and we are words and whiskey a podcast for veteran and novice readers like we tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking you should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club i would have a quip here but i feel like it's important to point out we will probably also be spoiling the entire red rising saga so that's although this point. is a prequel to the series there are a lot of Story notes that tie in to the rest of the series, so we will be spoiling that as well. So You also shouldn't read this before you read the series, because you were spoiled on one of the biggest notes from the second book that happens. That's very true. You shouldn't, but I, I feel like there are people that probably do. That's I that's an important enough side note. I don't think I think in this one we'll talk, I mean, we're, we probably will talk about the entire series in some context, but probably not too much that's overly plot specific because this is pretty self-contained. But, you know, mm-hmm. we 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 also license the right to do whatever the fuck we want. We're both. So we're both a little silly today. Um, so things are going to get a little strange, <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, I just noticed in the notes that you, it's still your stuff from the first because I, I copied the first uh, note from the first da episode into this yeah. so it's your fucking da notes <laughs> i was like are you gonna say that and i was like oh no you're that's that's not it you just didn't change it all right sweet with that today is our first episode of two covering the sons of aries today as i said earlier we're gonna be tackling volume one sons of aries as i mentioned is a story by pierce brown scripted by rick hoskin and art by eli powell I think that's kind of important to note up front, as will become obvious as we continue through the conversation. You know, I guess maybe that was a little bit too, that might have been too aggressive. But yeah, it's it's not fully Pierce's story, which is also interesting to see someone else's take, even with like his bones. So I think that this is, you know, kind of fun, fun to talk about that way too. Don't take his bones. But before we do that, don't take his bones. (laughs) No bones day for Pierce Brown, (laughs) real quick. (laughs) oh man all right so pj what are you drinking so i have a little cocktail called an improved whiskey cocktail it is two and a quarter ounces of rye half an ounce of maraschino liqueur a dash of absinthe and three dashes of peshad bitters it calls for a lemon garnish i didn't have any lemon so i didn't do that and I think it could have used it. I think um, instead I garnished as I tend to because I have them with a cocktail cherry. But I think it could have used a little bit of brightness, a little bit of acidity, a little bit of just lemon, for lack of a better term, because that's what it would have been. Ultimately, it's a little bit spicy, pretty bitter. I'm here for it. I think it that's exactly what I was looking for. But um, just to balance things out, I think lemon would have done really well here. Either way, it tastes good. I had never had maraschino liqueur before, so Mm. I picked some of that up. 
Um, I feel like this is going to be a similar thing to Fernet Branca in that everything that it exists in calls for like a little tiny bit of it. So, <laughs> and they only had a liter bottle. So I've got a lot of that. Also, I've been looking for a Dasher bottle. I think I'm going to have to order it online because I can't find them anywhere. And I'm really mm-hmm. getting upset with like overpouring my absinthe indiction. Uh, today <laughs> I just fair. put my thumb over like the cap of the bottle and like dripped mm-hmm. it in a little bit. But man, like absinthe, it's tasty, but it is so goddamn strong. It is absolutely overpowering in some cocktails. So yeah, I do not. I, I agree with you. I think a dasher bottle is a great idea. I just have a very tiny. Um, I think I've talked about this before, but like those weird like four ounce, six ounce, like vertical wine advent calendar things that kind of look like enlarged test tubes. Mm-hmm. And so those have a small enough top where I can basically do the thumb method and it's fairly effective. Yeah. But I would definitely prefer a dasher bottle. I was just, you know, improving <laughs> as one is wont to do. And then what are you following up with? I've got, I think, my favorite can of Blackstack I've ever had. I haven't tasted it yet, but it's another New England IPA because that's what they do. That's like mm-hmm. the thing they do so well. But title, Can I Speak to Your Manager? And style, <laughs> I don't intend to pay for this New England IPA. <laughs> um, nice. So it's the back um, label where it gives all the description and everything. It's... Uh, Strata, Mosaic, Equinot, and HBC 568 hops. But it's it's a nice sort of shout out to industry service workers and all the shit they have to put up with. So I'm sure it'll taste good, but I haven't haven't opened it yet. So what about you, Crossland? Yeah. What are you drinking? I'm uh, I'm very jealous of the beer. The can I speak to your manager, please? Uh, I am having an El Huapo, but I'm also calling it the Rage of Aries um, because I swapped out one of the ingredients that we'll talk about in a second here. So what it is is it is two ounces of tequila, six pieces of lime chunk, uh, basically just kind of quartered. You know, not like a full quartered lime, but like you cut it into the wedge, you cut that in half, and I did that six times. So or yep. with to get six pieces so three of those three fourth ounces of simple syrup and then in theory you would put in cholula hot sauce however i don't like cholula more than i like other hot sauces personally um still like it but it's not one that i keep around my house however i'm out of a lot of my other hot sauces so i had to go down to the barrel of using tabasco which i knew wasn't gonna be hot enough and it was gonna be a little bit too vinegary and i want something with a little bit more you know tomatillo tomato like you might get out of cholula however my other option was just to go very hot there and so i put in the tabasco tabasco scorpion pepper hot sauce which is why i'm calling it the rage of aries because it is hot um and then you just top it with pepper and a little bit of cayenne so there you go yeah that sounds delicious look too it's super fucking good. I'm actually, I'm really happy that I went with this one to try it. And then following that up with a relative mainstay on the show. I haven't had it in a while. It was it was a long time ago, but Kitten Biscuit from Wilmington Brewing Company, mm-hmm. which again, the younger child of Lion Cake. I know that I've said this many times yes. on the show. So if you've heard before, you know exactly what it is. Uh, but they started brewing it again. They took it off uh, off rotation for like three months and then brought it back out again. So, Well, welcome back. Yep, Kitten welcome Biscuits. back. Here, here it is. Uh, they just launched a really cool kick-ass tap room too that I got to check out this weekend. But yeah, I saw a picture of you inside of it. It's so cool. It's so sweet. It's really big and awesome. So before we kind of we kind of do like a chapter by chapter breakdown, you know, six chapters in total. Overall, 
How'd you feel about the, the comic book here? I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the visual aspect of the story. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, like that's the intention being a graphic yeah, novel. Right. Um, and these were released as individual comic books, correct? Yes, this one okay. was. They are short. They're short little little things. I mean, they're comic books. You know, comic yeah. books are short. But I guess um, they they just felt very short, I think, because I already knew the story to uh, to a certain extent. And that's not a bad thing by any means. Um, it was a really enjoyable, quick read. I read it in the car on my way to uh, Wisconsin. And yeah, it was, it was a fun time. I read it twice in like yeah. an hour and a half or two hours or whatever. Um, but very cool to see the action play out without needing it to be narrated exactly. Um, Yeah, that's actually one of the biggest things that is both like a strength, and I can also see why people don't like it as much as they like the books, right? Is because part of the the love for Red Rising comes from the way that Pierce like narrates action. And with something like a graphic novel, all you have to do is show it. Like all you have to do is is physically put the picture on and draw the action and it draws our attention. You know, there's a lot of brutality in this that I think kind of gets you can almost skip over it because you you have to like physically look at it as opposed to like just jumping to the next sentence. So, you know, that's both a both a like critique and compliment to kind of the the work that Pierce does in writing, but then on top of that, it's a compliment to the art because it tries to tell that same story, you know, using predominantly art. And I think that's also what's so interesting about the audio drama. We also listen yes. to the audio drama for this one, and that is very different and more similar to listening to maybe two chapters, three chapters narrated of uh, of regular Red Rising. Yeah, something like that, right around there. I will say, I think I preferred the novels in style, mm-hmm. but I really did enjoy the uh, graphic novel, but. Oh, Sorry. oh! You're saying the the regular novels, the Red yeah. Rising novels? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think that obviously playing to the strengths of the medium, and you know, it's it's what Pierce was Pierce was doing, and everything like that. I, I think that these add kind of nice nice texture and flavor to the universe, and I think we're we're definitely going to talk more about some of the texture that it adds for sure. But um, overall, I thought it was really enjoyable enjoyable read. Um, I liked the audio drama. I also. And we'll talk about this as we go through specifically some of the different components. But there are points in the audio drama where it diverges so heavily from the graphic novel that it's fairly jarring and also occasionally seemingly wrong from the universe at large. There's at least one or two instances that I was listening and I was like, that's not the way that it works so far as we've been informed. Mm -hmm. And I know that Pierce obviously had a hand in the graphic novel and probably had final hearsay on all of that. But did he go through the graphic audio? Like, I I don't know the extent of kind of the collaboration there. But I have a feeling that there's one section in particular that would be pulled. Yeah, I I listened to the graphic audio after. I think you did, too. Mm -hmm. Um, Yep. Yeah. Read first graphic audio after. I didn't realize that it was divergent at all from the from the source. So I kept like thinking, did I, did I miss pages? Like, did I skip pages accidentally? Like what is going on here? And for the most part, it was innocent and just kind of adding flavor to it because yeah, 
you don't get the visuals, so you don't see what's happening, mm-hmm. and they need to be able to give you the background to understand what's happening. Yeah, understand the emotion. Right. But sometimes it was just entirely additional scenes, and I I couldn't even like point out to it <clears throat> off the top of my head, but I just know I'm like, did I miss like a chunk of pages here? Or did I mm-hmm. did a page stick together and I just missed it? That happened to me a couple of times. Pages sticking together and like missing a page and then being like, "Wait, why? Why do we jump?" And then I'd have to like undo the page and mm-hmm. you know go back. But yeah. yeah, I felt I pretty much I felt pretty much the same. Uh, in all honesty, I was I liked a lot of it, and I thought that I think that it's a great rendition of the story. Um, it's just like a question of how much of I believe that in general the sense of various graphic novels are considered canon the audio drama just feels like it takes a couple of liberties and pushes them a little bit too far in a couple of directions but again I don't think it's the end of the world I think it's still really enjoyable you know it just brings into the weird question of is this canon for the audio drama which is odd because you've got such a discrepancy between the two so as far as canon goes I really appreciate the like more evidence to call it canon within the universe the introduction by pierce brown Mm -hmm. which also means especially because he explicitly calls it out the razors and the pulse fists and wanting to see them illustrated and Mm -hmm. then now i have an actual like this is canonically what the razor should look like i'm super like stoked about it because it's kind of similar to what i had in my mind a little bit more ribbony, unless I, I'm thinking like almost very thin rat tail whip, like yeah, and um, that's I think what it should look like. Yeah, yeah. But having yeah. it having it like a ribbon that can be coiled pretty easily, like they talk about all the time, makes sense. So, yeah, I'm the one thing that, that made made it more difficult for me in terms of the graphic novel visualization just a little bit is how thick the hilts were. And that felt like more of a yes. stylistic thing, but it did look like a full on lightsaber. And I was like, how would you turn the razor like wrapped around your arm into something stylistic and then just have like the handle dangling there? Like that's, that's a little weird, but that was, that yeah. was my only like visual complaint really. I think in almost the entire graphic novel, mm-hmm. to be honest, my, my one sort of comeback to that, I guess would be the fact that, they're big enough to hide things within like Lysander yeah. hid things inside of it. So it's got to have some bulk to it. Yeah. There's know. a little compartment in the bottom, right? That he hid the ring in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's fair. It does have so. to have something to it. So maybe, maybe it is lightsaber sized. I don't know. But yeah, that I, that did stick out to me a little bit too. Like that looks pretty bulky. Mm-hmm. That's pretty chunky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, but over, overall, very good. Definitely liked it quite a bit more. Than, uh, than I thought, you know, one of the things that I, I cannot compliment enough is replicating a lot of that very sharp dialogue. And that's also one of the things that the audio drama, when it added dialogue, it did it incredibly in the style of Pierce Brown. Every mm-hmm. bit of added dialogue in the audio drama was fantastic. It was it was sharp. It was witty. It was it was great. And, and also the graphic novel. Fantastic. The art style, of course, I think is one of the things that a lot of people inside the community talk about um, and, and kind of somewhat turning them off. But I think that it's it's very intentional. And, and the choice of artists here is very intentional to be this like gritty, sharp lines, this sort of. You know, it's it's not clean like you might imagine like a Blade Runner comic probably would be, you know, with like mist and whatnot in the background. And this is this is a dark world. And it's almost reminiscent of 
you know, scratchings in a way. And like those, that scratching style makes me feel like the Romans in space kind of thing a little bit, you know, where it's not, it's not cleanly hewn. And, you know, I don't know. I, I just had yeah. that thought when I was kind of going through. I really liked it. Yeah. I, I had no issue with it at all. Yeah. I could see how, especially when you're not, when the, uh, the characters are kind of in the background and is really mm-hmm. sort of out of focus. I could see how that could turn some people off, but I it didn't bother me at all. Um, yeah. I mean, I comics, of course, have kind of that, that medium of being able to have things in the background and have things kind of distantly out of focus and, and have those different kind of components to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this did it really well. For instance, I was on a, a different podcast talking about the Dark Tower comic books, and I obviously will not be talking plot at all of that. But one of the complaints that I have about the Dark Tower comic books is a lot of the time the background will just be a single color pastel that's kind of like faded, and then you'll just have like hyper detailed characters in front. And I'll tell you what, I would take this nine times out of ten over the way that the Dark Tower comics appear. Although I, I still really like them and I still love the art style and oh my God, there's some like incredible work going on there, but it seems like I just wanted more out of the backgrounds to some mm-hmm. degree. So I was yeah. glad to kind of get both, even if it was, you know, sometimes indiscriminate. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. So there, there were a couple times that I actually pointed out to you. I'm like, what's going on here? Because it looks like that should be that character, but they just kind of look similar. Um, like that did happen a couple times to me, but yeah, yeah. And I think that the one that you're talking about is the scene with, um, when they're in the Institute with the two kids from Diana that are running in and then get ambushed mm-hmm. by Varden, like what God, what's his first name? Alturius and Fitchner. So they're ambushed by the house, right? And they they get themselves killed. That's one thing that the audio drama definitely helped with. But that was also similarly my biggest sticking point of of misunderstanding. Yeah. But the audio drama made it very clear. It's like two two runaways from House Diana or something like that. And it was very much like, yeah, it Mm. was very clear. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, man. I I dug it. Dug it. So with that, any other kind of overarching thoughts um, that you want to get out of the way? I mean, we'll probably return to this at the end after we talk about it, but yeah, let's let's return later. I I think for now I'm good. Cool. All right. So chapter one is obviously our introduction here to the entire conceit that we're finding. Chapter one is called Child on the Rock. So. Uh, this story starts off with us kind of in medias rest to some degree, especially because we return to the beginning moment of this way later. So it's definitely in medias, in medias rest um, with Fitchner and a group abducting a gold for mm. a reason. And then we kind of get a series of flashbacks. We we understand his life. We get a lot of picture and color. What do you think of the intro here? Oh, heist shit. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> right like man it was it was invigorating right away but if we want to go um chronologically instead of starting right away in the in medias res as you say i'm not that pretentious so in the middle (laughs) um (laughs) son of a bitch (laughs) no but um child on a rock Mm -hmm. that's exactly what happened to adrius right Mm -hmm. yeah was it for this reason pretty sure i but he wasn't that like scrawny. No, he was scrawny. Was he? When, like he was. He was. He wasn't like physically deformed in the same way that he was. But he was a much smaller child. Okay. And so he was left on the rock in the in the same kind of way. 
Okay. So, yeah, I mean, it was it, very cool to see and very visual, um, mm-hmm. very evocative in on the page too. I loved that. There's obviously the. I, I think this is something that was added in the audio drama as well. Was um, the the questioning of if his mother put up a fight over it, or is that in the graphic novel? I feel like that was in the audio drama, not the graphic novel. Okay, if I remember correctly, because we don't see a whole lot of his parents, right? On, outside of like the one flash to them, like sitting in front of the HC and whatnot there, and like mm-hmm. ha- being like, "Oh, we have a peerless scar in the family. We're gonna, we're gonna make it. We'll do it." Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Other than that, we don't see a whole lot of a uh, whole lot of Fitchner's parents. Mm-hmm. It seemed like he didn't really care if they cared or not. For for the no, most yeah. part. So it was odd to have that sort of like boo-hoo, did they even put up a fight for me? Because he seemed more callous than that. I mean, I, mean, I think he's callous because he reflected on it, you know, that, being like, did they, you know. That's a good point. Yeah. Because he's like, I don't think they did because they didn't fucking want me. They barely proved that they want me now, you know. Yeah. like, Yeah, that's fair. Definitely, definitely a bad, bad family home life. Mm-hmm. Which you also makes sense as to why, like, we start to look at, like, the handed down trauma to Severo and, like, why he values his kids and family so much is because he's trying to feed into and repair some of this generational mm-hmm. family trauma <laughs> that, that both he and Fitcher experienced. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's fair. One thing. Sorry. This is kind of overarching as well. One thing that kind of caught me off guard mm-hmm. was the censorship of the swear words. I didn't care that much, but it. it surprised me i thought it was stylized and also intended to ensure that this could go out in mass easily mm-hmm. so obviously just with the the number of swear words they would have to if you flip on the back it says t for teen um they would have to obviously market it differently and sell it and i'm sure there are restrictions that i'm unaware of inside of the the comic book industry at large i just know that there are obviously imprints for those kind of things specifically so it might have meant that it wouldn't get ordered into shops and so they they you know kind of kept it um we got the first letter of every word and they stylistically dashed it out for the most part. We still got our gory dams and bloody dams in there. So, yeah, you know, it was, it was kind of like I was like, this is a sacrifice that you made to put it in the medium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it made sense. But the audio drama went full bore, man. <laughs> that <laughs> they did. added a bunch of swear words. <laughs> That's true. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So the the crew that he's with, there's obviously his sister-in-law, Rihanna. Ri- yep. Rihanna. Yep, um, Rihanna, I think. Something like that. Psy. Silax, yep. Silax. And then there's yep. a couple others that I can't remember their names. Phoenix and Doran. Yes. Yes. Yep. I think it's Phoenix. Yeah, Phoenix. And they abduct, weirdly, Selenius. Not spelled the same, <laughs> but that threw me off right away. I'm like, did I That's- read this wrong? <laughs> that's interesting i wasn't i wasn't even paying attention to that i was like oh they just abducted like some bronzy and this is one of the problems that i had with the audio drama is that i was like oh they abducted some bronzy who's going to the brothel and sleeping with pinks and it's a regular fucking gold how cool a regular gold's in charge of something we can kind of get a picture of this and then the audio drama goes uh, it, like he says something about him being a peerless scar and i was like fuck why why'd you have to ruin that for me um of which I don't know what to believe in this case. This is one of the two cases where the audio drama pushed me just a little bit. I mean, we get we get in a detailed, up close look of his face as he's <laughs> getting shot. We can see if there's a scar. I didn't think there was. It looked like his jawline. And I I spent a long time looking and staring. And I'd be very curious as to listeners who have who have read this for the first time um, or who are reading this. 
to look at his face in each of the individual shots because as I went through, none of those lines looked to be anywhere near similar the scar on Fitchner's. In particular, on like the fourth page or something like that on the left side or the okay from Child of the Rock one two. This is why this is so difficult to do. It's yeah, yeah. This it's, one. I'm looking at the same one. I, yeah. I don't think so. I don't think so. And they said that he was purely scarred in the audio drama. And it's like, no, that doesn't, that scar is supposed to go like down across your cheekbone. And you can literally see it so clearly on Fitcher's face and uh, Varden's face when he gets it, Alturius's face when they're delivered at Post Institute that I was like, no, that's, that's not it at all. And you're not going to just abduct a peerless scarred like that either. Yeah. I don't know, man. I didn't think he was a peerless scarred, but he might be. So yeah, maybe who, who knows? I just wanted to believe that he was a rich, rich, plain old gold. That's what he so. seems like he should be. Yeah, right? Yeah. So anyway, minor complaint. But mm-hmm. I believe, I'm going to go with he's a plain old gold and ignore the audio drama here because of a grievous error that they make later that I do not think is acceptable that we'll talk mm-hmm. about when we get there once again. But <laughs> I just, the Selenius thing was mm-hmm. confusing. It's a C, yeah. not an S, but still... <clears throat> You'd imagine it being like Kalinius or Kalinius. Maybe this is one of those things where maybe Pierce was like made fun of for how he spelled Selenius and so decided to spell it the correct Roman way and then like put it in to like, maybe <laughs> you know, like be fucky about it. Because that, again, feels like a thing that Pierce would do for for shiggles. But, you know, yeah. So we we obviously get our massive hype heist set up. We get the the childhood of Fitchner. We get into the beginning of the Institute but we end before we meet Alturius, who we've already talked a lot about. Do you have anything else in the first first chapter, first book? I think it's a great introduction. I think it introduces people to the world really well. But, mm-hmm. but you know. like we said, they should probably have read the At books least before the first this. three books. <laughs> so, like, but if they hadn't, it's really well done laying out all the colors. Mm-hmm. Like right away, page two or something. There's the lineup of all the colors, which I found mm-hmm. to be really cool. That was um, that was one of my favorite things is that like two page prologue. That's yeah. like here's the universe, here's what it is, here's the conquering. You see that photo of an iron rain, you know? Like yeah. that's cool with child on a, where child on a rock is. Like, ooh my god, that was yeah. that was great. Yeah, exactly. And all the yeah. the lineup of all the colors was I think mm-hmm. my favorite drawing, especially because of the the looks on their faces. If you really look closely <laughs> at them, the gold's the only one smiling. Yeah. Uh, right. Which I thought which was is kind great. Of funny because everyone else is, you know, being punished effectively in some capacity or being you know, mm-hmm. enslaved in some way. The other component here that I really liked that I should mention here, we can mention it here since we're at the beginning throughout this novel or graphic novel when you're reading it, I it's ingenious to color all of the speech bubbles as the color of the color mm-hmm. and that adds to the kind of the people behind the masks kind of conversation that's going on and lets you communicate that so easily wouldn't have understood it otherwise yeah you'd have had no way to no way to know um and i i think that that's it could have been fun to leave like the first several like you could almost leave the first book for the most part uncolored when they're behind the masks and then have them reveal and have them be colored um Mm -hmm. i could see that being a decision but i think it's better because they don't pull them off until the very end you know, for the most part, we get their names. So we know their colors anyway, you know, at different points. So, yeah, I just thought that that was great. I loved I loved the coloring and how that like indicated position very easily in my mind. And I knew there was just such good association there. 
the number of conversations that other low colors have constantly and the kind of the focus here is one of the best parts of this entire novel is mm-hmm. despite Fitchner being our lead, we have the entire heist team, which is composed of different colors and lives, you know, has has a huge impact on the story. Then on top of that, we get red and reds talking, we get gray and reds interacting, we get all of these different layers that it feels like it communicates an iron gold like story in yeah. the fact that we get so many different characters, you know, layered in in different ways. With that, let's move into chapter two now slash then, which I love. One of the things that I really like about the story on the whole is how it uses kind of these interstitial moments, uses the action of the heist to kind of guide us through Fitcher's backstory and these inner cuts back and forth. Feels very Guy Ritchie. <laughs> like very Guy. It's heisty too, you know? It's like, it's very Guy Ritchie. What heist thing isn't going to feel like Guy Ritchie to me, though? Like, you, well, like Ocean's Eleven, I mean, yeah. doesn't feel Guy Ritchie, you know? Like, That's true. I just, I just imagine this in kind of that styling. Mm. Yeah, especially because it's gritty. You know, it reminds me of kind of Wrath of Man in its own way, in, in kind of the stakes, I guess, of, of sort of the story. Yeah. But yeah, oh, man. Uh, anyway, I love the kind of intercut here that we get between the Institute, um, the Obsidians that are that are catching them after killing uh, what's his name, Selenius, and getting the code for the cipher so that they can get in to what we later learn is the um, Board of Quality Control, which is cool that we're, we're kind of exploring that more. That was awesome. Yeah. What do you think of, uh, of now then kind of in general? As you mentioned, the interstitials was just so cool. Having mm-hmm. that peek into what molded Fitchner mm-hmm. and how he changes. Like, he's he's this scrawny dude at the Institute, it, much in the same way that we first saw Darrow in the intro to Red Rising, with the speech being given by the Arch-Governor. Same Arch-Governor, by the way. Same Arch-Governor, probably the same speech every year, huh? <laughs> yep, I'd think so. <laughs> But he's like whispering to himself, I'm ready. Like he's he's super into this shit. Mm-hmm. And he's not quite that jaded yet. <laughs> but he gets yeah. broken very quickly. Yeah, I, I really I really can't emphasize enough how much I liked. And I didn't think that I would enjoy this as much as I did that I liked a second pass at the Institute. And seeing it again from different perspective was completely different. It was it was a wild. You you obviously aren't aware of this. Hunger Games again. Hunger Games book one tackles the Hunger Games. Hunger Games book two tackles a second Hunger Games in which old participants are forced to compete in it. So it kind of feels like you know those things were direct sequels. It there's enough time removed here from like point A to point B from our reading journey that this is cool to see again. Like this is a fun time to like be reimmersed. In sort of the bloody tradition and also potentially how it's changed because the the drafters seem to form the teams afterwards in the comic book. It wasn't perfectly clear. Well, so so he throws the ring down and says there's one there's one spot left in my house. Yeah, but, but I don't th- think he was drafted beforehand. You know what I mean? Like he wasn't drafted into the house beforehand and then <sighs> was like chosen secretly to be a part of House Mars. And then throws actually. After he wins in the passage, right. after he survives the passage, they say that they he put him in House Mars. Yeah. How did it go before? They were, they were they drafted, were drafted into houses and then the passage yep. happened. Yep. This, it seems like there's one spot left in my house, doesn't reveal what the house is, and then he's in House Mars. But there's the ring. Yeah. 
yeah. he does drop the ring, you know, and then he, he Fitcher's whole thing with like dropping the ring in blood. Again, another great ad of the audio drama when he drops the ring in blood um, and then puts it on his hand bloody. Oh, I loved that. Yeah. I loved that. Yeah. Um, just kind of that acknowledgement of, of what he's choosing to become. Um, mm, mm, juicy, juicy. Yeah. Other thoughts? Did you have... Uh, I mean, obviously, there's that fucking kid that's bullying him that he then gets to fucking kill, which is great. (laughs) Yeah. But it seemed... It seemed like in Red Rising, they were unaware of the passage. Mm Mm-hmm. And in this one, they all knew that it was coming. So, what was interesting... Is that and and for the most part, I think you're kind of right. He knew that he didn't know. Fitcher didn't know that the passage was happening, or he Fitcher knew almost nothing about the institute, almost nothing. However, Alturius did know just about everything about the institute, and that was that was a revelation between the two of them that happened afterwards. The reason I say that is because it's not in speech bubbles. Some of the other kids knew, just like some of the other kids knew before you know in darrow's year some of the kids knew what the passage was going to be um it's the rich kids you know it's the cheaters it's the same kind of group um but fitzer didn't know so here it is um page this one when when he first gets dropped in he he said do you uh do you know what this is uh the passage correct blah 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 um, and then in the not actual speech, the monologue, mm-hmm. you hear yeah. about it in whispers, a nightmare no one can explain. Um, it was then that I learned why. But I think in the audio drama, they say yes, every child, every gold child knows about the passage. Yeah, I think. But it also says except me or like except every like okay. rich gold. I think there's a there's a there's something on there that says there's that not caveat. everyone knows, but all of these golds knew. OK, but I'm an outsider. And so like I had no clue, um, but it was it was something like that. Yeah. When he's getting bullied, it says something along the lines of, oh, yeah, the passage will sort that or the passage will sort yeah. it quick. Yeah. So which like, again they, is another component of like the rich kids know, but the, yeah, you know. Yeah, that makes sense. Which is also what happened to Darrow. That's a good point. Um, but it, for me, when I read the the book, because we're strictly locked in Darrow's perspective, it felt like it was a completely, like, nobody knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. And also, if people understood that the passage exists, hypothetically, you'd think the Bolognas would know pretty well. Mm-hmm. Cassius wouldn't take that much offense if he knew what it what was coming, well, Cassius wasn't going to take offense until he knew that Darrow lied. That again is one of the core arguments that yeah, we that's a good all the point. way back in Red Rising. Is it's not it's not just the killing of Julian; it's also the lie and then perpetuating that and killing Titus and like. Yeah, but he showed it still rage would have fragmented for their friendship. He yeah, showed it rage for it their friendship towards Titus when he thought it was Titus. Hmm. So it, I I think he still would have been mad. Yeah. With without a doubt, I don't. I just don't think it would have been as bad, yeah, quite as fair. bad to him as a That's just. perfectly true. That's definitely yeah. true. But I don't know. I, I'm trying to grip what the actual like thing is because knowledge it feels, ramifications are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
because there was there was a note that there was a note somewhere in Red Rising, and I'm only I'm only doing this because I have a friend who's rereading it now, and she keeps asking me questions, and I'm like, oh god, I have to reimmerse myself in that first book, and I've I've forgotten. Now she's in the second book and almost done, and I'm like, oh god, was it Aries <laughs> or was it Dancer that said that? And it's like, uh, uh, uh look it up. Um, <laughs> I had to look it up, but yeah, that I also was reading back on this, and there was a note somewhere about him it might have been even in golden sun where it's like he had to have known that julian wasn't going to make it because julian was the softer of the two twins like he was he was not gonna okay. he's never gonna make it out and like that i think roke says something like that yeah. at one point okay i feel like i that's don't right, recall but, that but yeah something like that i don't know yeah. but and i mean yeah especially that first book let's not pretend pierce's like train of thought is ironclad like he yeah, forgets shit right. all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's gotten better, and you know, there's a line of consistency that you can draw. At the very and least, also, so this kind good. of gives him this gives him a chance to reapproach that sort of those early stages, reapproach mm-hmm. the institute with some perspective of what like this this world's been or this universe has been bouncing around his, in his head for a lot longer this kind of gives him the chance to set it straight a little bit. So yeah. Yeah. Which I think is, I I think it's a great, great way for him to kind of be able to go through this and, you know, talk about mm -hmm. it that way. Yeah. Could not, could not agree more. I I really like kind of the way that this, uh, this sets all that up. So Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, we are also introduced to the eventual rival of Fitchner, Arturius and the house of Varden, Al Varden, the good friend uh, who teaches Fitchner how to run and when to turn around and fight. And, you know, in, in a lot of ways, feels like Cassius, feels like Roke, feels almost interspersed maybe into that house a little bit, given the age and his working at the Board of Quality Control. He has to know Roke's mom, probably. I didn't mean to bring Roke into this, but I thought about the Board of Quality Control again. Yeah, mm-hmm. brain. But yeah. What would you think of Arturius? For me, this felt like Cassius. Yeah. Right away. Like initially this felt like this is this is Fitchner's Cassius. Mm-hmm. And that changes a little bit right after graduation. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Like his his motivations, his partying, his uh what would you call it? He's got disobedience like to his mom. Right? Like, yeah. Shit like that. Uh he's he, kinda like he a spoiled a spoiled he's, kid. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. And I don't think we ever really see much of that from cassius so that's where they diverge but within the institute he is definitely the more knowledgeable about what it means to be here mm-hmm. and really makes fitchner survive because i don't think he would have made it without no some it very much seems like it was it was you know, he was fighting to survive but again i don't think he would have came out with a peerless scar at the very least without Arturius's help that's that I mean that's also the point of the institute is your strength in making friends and finding friends and whatnot too so I do find it interesting of course that he isn't he isn't made a slave you know in the same kind of way yeah not not officially yeah right but but he talks about that like he He even says slave in all but name I think I think that's like literally the quote yeah yeah because he he gets his peerless scar by being subjugated essentially yeah joining house Jupiter being the more or less lackey of Arturius. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You kind of see that with Darrow in a weird way. Like you see that parallel too. Mm-hmm. Like he's got all these people following him and it's not so much the same 
to the same effect, but from the outside looking in, it kind of is like, these are kind of people doing his bidding. They're following his lead. You could throw Severo into that mix too, within yeah. reason, right? Like with eventually the with the Howlers and yeah. him running away on his own from House Mars, basically, because he didn't think that he would be accepted is very kind of similar to how Fitchner leaves House Mars when he sees it being destroyed. You know, he's not strictly wanking off in the bushes, but he did run away. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, I just had a blast. It's a fun time. Yeah. I had a blast reading through all the all the flashbacks and stuff. It was it was really brutal, but it was fun. Like I had a good time, even though like there was a lot of brutality. Um, mm-hmm. one of the one of the small things that the um audio drama added was a little bit about med bots and like them wearing down and saving kids and like they really added to the institute part a lot in the audio drama, and I liked it. I liked that con- contribution a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it thickened up the story quite a bit there. I think that's was, the main nice. point where I kept thinking like, did I miss things? Because mm-hmm. it really fleshed it out a lot more. Yeah, it was almost an entire additional issue of comics, it felt like. Like, in, in terms of context, like, it was so much additional context um, that I enjoyed. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I like that. Of course, we kind of end this section somewhat um, with the breakup, like we said, between Arturius and Fitchner. And then we go into Fitchner heading to Triton via Quicksilver, which is a big deal, right? Right. And we also resume our little jaunt jaunted quest um after getting the you know the scars and whatnot blah blah blah. we jump back to fitchner absolutely destroying the obsidians the two obsidians like just murking them which i thought was really cool to see that kind of depiction of violence of like jumping between and then clubbing one and then razoring the other and Mm -hmm. that fight scene was sweet depicted on page yeah i've talked a lot about the razor fight scenes in mm-hmm. in Red Rising or in the Red yeah. Rising saga. Mm-hmm. And they're also for good reason because it's so satisfying to read, but they're very wordy and flowery mm-hmm. in detail because they're he's he's spending pages describing something that takes like a couple seconds. Mm-hmm. And this was just swift, but seeing the just seeing the razor go from kind of whip shape to straight saber like rapier mm-hmm. did it for me man like <laughs> i loved it yeah <laughs> yeah on top of that some of the some of the imagery here the the one piece of image that really got me in in this entire issue was when we're staring at the brains of the obsidian and it blends into the stars uh right before the issue ends and you flip into issue three and you're like jesus christ like that looks gross and is awesome and Again, this is where I think that any adaptation will excel is kind of taking brutality and blending it effectively into the world. I think this also shows that you could add scenes to Red Rising that are other versions of violence that you'd have to um, in order to, like you said, kind of extend the duels and make it, you know, make it approachable to screen. You have to make it more grandiose almost even than it's portrayed because it can't all just be, Mm -hmm. um, you know, one on one razor duels. And I think this is a great example. And especially because those one-on-one razor duels, if you really like take the time to sort of pace it out and see Mm -hmm. what's happening, it's like three or four moves. It's like, whoop, whoop, head's gone. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I I think, I think you could definitely stretch it out for, for the sake of stretching it out where it needs to be. You know, Mm -hmm. you like the duel with Aja is not going to go quick. Let's be real. That's a grind. That's a fight. That's going to be ridiculous. 
when if ever it's depicted uh the duel with cassius again will be similar but there there are a number of combats that should just be whoop whoop boom and you know you can see that being depicted a-okay i think it's it's something that gets minimize a lot in adaptation anyway is like they do cut down fight scenes because it takes so much more it takes so many more words to describe you know versus mm-hmm. a picture a picture 1000 words blah, blah blah stupid but yeah yeah so we move into chapter three the drowning of titan i know that i just said that one of my favorite things in, graphically visually in this graphic novel is the uh brain of the obsidian but my next favorite is the second page of issue three when it's they're all vertical panels and it's the group climbing up the ladder and as they're climbing up the ladder the ladder gradually fades and the only thing you can see is the Ares mask and then on top of that it gradually rolls in the starship as it's approaching titan and you're like that's a perfect fucking scene transition that's how you transition into fucking movie dudes like that is that was perfect that's how i'd want to see that depicted on screen holy shit how fucking cool but yeah, the drowning on Tri- Triton. This is where the audio drama really got me, and I was like, I need to see this adapted so bad. When we we cut in, um, we land. We're introduced to a lot of things. We see the obsidians uh, walking around for the first time, and then the audio drama cuts to like throat singing in the background as Fitchner's narrating about the lives of the obsidians, and I was like. Ah, please, I want more. <laughs> this is so good. I want that culture depicted on screen so badly. Gimme it, gimme, gimme. Yep. Um Yeah, the the depiction of Triton in addition is fantastic. Any anything that you liked? Any particulars? Just going off of obsidian culture and how them them in general. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I really liked mm, I don't know what I think about the way that they were depicted visually. I guess I don't they kind of look like a bag of rags. They do. <laughs> but also, they are jacked. And yes, they're strong, but I always like imagine them so much more lithe, you know? Hmm. Like, I, I imagine, imagine more them... mountain-ish. Do but... you? Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I. But yeah, I imagine I them scrawny a little bit. Like strong, but kind of weird, weirdly scrawny looking. That's what I have in my head a little bit. I think more the a couple of the females were very scrawny, and some of this might be dissonance because we we spent so much time with female obsidians, but mm-hmm. but also because a lot of them were described as scrawny. Tomless was, was also super d- scrawny, um, but I think that Ragnar, was because he was, I thought in, was the sort of exception as this like jacked giant like roided out obsidian. Well, he's like the mountain of obsidians, you know right. what I mean? Like he's <laughs> there. There are obsidians, and then there's Ragnar. <laughs> Uh, which you know very very cool love ragnar love love the whole thing um but yeah Mm -hmm. i i do i do feel you i i think that some of that is like keeping them in again the later depictions that we see of obsidians in the series because they aren't really introduced until like hardcore we don't really see obsidians until golden sun and we really see obsidians with the introduction um, of Ragnar, of course, in Golden Sun. But we really see the culture and we get a lot of comparisons in Morningstar. So, mm. you know, I, I feel like this keeps them subtle enough and in the background and kind of mysterious and strange for the comic book's sake. Because the obsidians aren't playing a huge deal, huge role. That's true. But, yeah, I mean, we don't really have any obsidian talking, I think, in the entire... Mm. Oh, we do in the audio drama, but we don't in <laughs> <laughs> that's we don't the, in the books. That's the other thing. Um, 
in the Institute in Red Rising, is it obsidians that bring them down? It is. Okay. I thought it was just like older students. Nope. Obsidians. Okay. Because I know they are in this because you see their sigils and shit. But Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Seeing the Lovelock engine too and seeing this terraform in process and like having that described and, and kind of seeing that whole kind of component going on, I thought was really cool. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how else to describe it. It was fantastic. This is this is like what you kind of want out of a Red Rising prequel, right? Like another prequel that you want is to like see the terraforming of Mars. But here's a different way of giving you that without specifically giving you the terraforming of Mars, you know? Right. Yeah. And they're they're very clear like this is what all the planets go through. Mm-hmm. Kind of seeing the birth of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Loved it. And mm-hmm. if only it was a little bit more stable, I guess. <laughs> yeah i I mean the most of the story wouldn't happened if it was more stable but obviously that whole thing explodes that's a big deal because it kills the steward the the gold steward that's leading around fucking um fitchner as he's going around on triton and then on top of that he decides he makes in, in that moment he realizes to go against the instinct that arturius is it arturius my brain keeps fucking it up arturius that Arturia says, which is to like run away from these until you can turn back and face it properly. And he decides that he's going to jump in and, and handle the situation. And so this is like this is his pivotal moment before he even meets Bryn. But he does the right thing. And because he does the right thing, he meets Bryn and has for the first time in his life really a truly great change of luck and, and fortune. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for a bit. For <laughs> <laughs> the tragedy of Fitchner only is worse when you remember how he fucking dies in Golden Sun. So, like, it doesn't. The problem is, <laughs> uh. <laughs> however, what what this also tells me is that you could very easily, you know, this this entire graphic novel also reads like a self-contained TV episode or maybe like TV episodes. You might even piece two together as like one single episode and tells you what you could get away with in like a flashback episode and like what you could tell about like Iona Bologna, which I think I brought up in like every episode in the last four weeks. I never don't smile anytime you say that name. I find it funny. It's a funny name. It's a very funny name. Well, I was I was sitting here questioning. I was like, "How old is Nero?" I forgot how old Nero was. You know, I, I was one of those yeah. details that just had fallen out of my head. He's like ninety eight. Is he really? Yeah. What the? That's fuck? What I was like, "Oh yeah." It also makes sense. Like it didn't. I I was like, "Of course, he's he is like of a sorry, he's ninety three." Um, but like still, That's I, I mean, better point stands. It's a little yeah. better. <laughs> it's, I guess. A, it's a five year difference. <laughs> But yeah, I, I think that it's it, it makes it for a very interesting talking point again that like Nero's been in power for so long at this point. And even I think it's in book four when they go back to Mars, like we have the speech of Nero Augustus greeting them as they're landing. And oh, man, it's all, also reminiscent of uh, of Mustang's speech to, to Lyria um, as she's yeah. not that she's giving it, but, you know, the announcement. And um, all, like separately, Fitchner's. 19 i think mm-hmm. when he yeah. meets bryn mm-hmm. 19 yeah, yeah so he's 20 when Severo's born mm-hmm. like that's a stark difference compared to mustang and nero yeah right so. very very giant age gap there although that's like keep in mind three nero generations entire wife in there <laughs> yeah fair point fair point um <laughs> yeah fuck dude oh man mm. Ouch. 
Ouchie mama. Ouchie mama. All right, so obviously, going back to the Reds, this is a huge deal for for him, and I think it also obviously sets up his understanding and love of people and belief that the society could be wrong here because why aren't we going out to save these people because the other guy made such a big deal about them being you know so expendable and cheap um that he decides that lives are worth it and then meets one that is so important to him that this is the foundation of aries like this is you know it doesn't it doesn't build to an extreme point yet but we're we're setting the foundation effectively for for aries yeah big deal um, what do you think of the Red Society on Triton? It didn't have the teeth that Mars did. Like there weren't as as surly a people, mm-hmm. I guess, and kind of lacked an identity in general. I felt like I everything that I felt from the Reds mm-hmm. within the graphic novel, I feel like I was completely projecting from my knowledge of reds in red rising which is fair to do yeah fair point you'd expect are these low reds or are these high reds that's that's a question for sure i guess they're technically high on, reds on the surface since they're on the surface one would one would potentially assume that they would be high reds but based on the their like labor status i don't know they they might be low reds cuz these are early colonizers these are actually what the low reds on mars are being lied to about doing you know like in yeah. Mars, they're lying to them, saying that the mining is going to bring about, and this is like them actually bringing it about. So, it is interesting. It is also interesting because the Reds that we know are so baked into mining culture because they're Martian Reds. That you know, is this should should we have gotten like you said a better picture of like a slightly different culture? I mean, we do get like the funeral pyre, which is different um, for you know sending them off to the veil, but mm-hmm. holistically, is it entirely different. I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah. That's an interesting point, though. I don't know if that makes sense to me. This is this is a new world. They're mm-hmm. newly terraforming it, but they came from some somewhere. Like presumably, these were Reds that were shipped from maybe Mars. Sure. I don't know. Yeah, they. I mean, they also like even if they were terraforming it for a generation, you'd still expect some form of cultural traditions outside of you know. We do see two. I mean, or three. We see the wedding. We see the funeral, and we, we see. The see veil. The veil, yeah. 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 Um, the so, wedding was also, I mean... Pretty nondescript, again. Yeah, but, pretty non- yeah. nondescript, that's a good way to put it. It. I just felt like the red culture is so rich because we're so immersed in it um, right away in the, in the novel mm-hmm. that it just kind of felt lost here. Yeah. And I w- wanted more of it. That's definitely fair. I think the other a fun part of this, too, you know, we obviously do lose some and, and that's a big deal. But one of the things that I found that was very fun is obviously we, we kind of skipped over this, but like Bryn and Fitcher meet up because they're both being treated by Yellows, Medici from the incident. I really love that. Obviously, we could see Yellows like we get a little bit of Yellows. We get like very little. But, you know, it's nice to see kind of the functions and how they help out different colors differently the violet coming and it also doing some medical duty, which makes sense. We've, we've seen and heard that before. So it's not like yellow yellows, like maybe seed the arm and then violets carve it makes, makes for a very interesting component. And then also, you know, like the, the differences in treatment where in Britain, at the very least gets a, you know, artificial limb, but yeah, prosthetic, not artificial, but yeah. Yeah. I thought there'd be a little bit more monologue, I guess more, uh, internal monologue from Fitchner about that 
Because mm-hmm. that seems like something he would really kind of go off on. Based on... About the disparity between the two? Mm-hmm. I think that's that's one of those things about this graphic novel versus, you know, a fully fleshed out maybe novella or or something of that nature is you would probably see more here. And there's there's an assumption a lot of times in graphic novels and in visual mediums that you as the reader are connecting the dots and that you're mm-hmm. noticing that, oh, this is a red versus a gold. The hierarchy would say um, that this is a thing. And again, I think that to kind of our collective point that we've been discussing so far you shouldn't read this first. There are a ton of reasons that you shouldn't read this first. And one of them is this sort of understanding that we're saying, if this were a first pass on a project, you would want to make that very clear about the disparity of treatment. And it doesn't because I think it's supposed to be subtextual to some degree to us, you know, as Mm -hmm. readers being like, Oh, this is obviously a subtext that Fishner is frustrated with, but it gets, it gets as far as him, like explicitly asking about it, but it doesn't go into his, his thoughts. Right. So, yeah, that's a good point. It's I mean, it's a small thing, but I, I agree with you. I think that that's just a difference in a medium, you know, and also you wouldn't really get it if, you know, you didn't there. One of the things that I also really like about this is the way that it pieces out the introduction of Fitchner's crew over the course of the story. And here is also where we get introduced to Doran and Rihanna, 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 not Rihanna. But Rihanna, Rihanna, R Y A. It's not Rihanna, but it's I think it's Rihanna. I just think I think that's a fun way to introduce the crew, right? Like a heist, you generally are recruiting people in over time. This is instead like slow introductions. And we we understand why each one of them is involved by kind of the end of the story Mm -hmm. and their own individual motivations to a certain extent. Yeah, right. Like Doran's in because Rihanna's in Rihanna's in because Bryn Silax is in because he wants money. I think he's one of Quicksilver's boys. He's yeah. Phoenix is Fitchner's assigned Quicksilver assistant that he like eventually paid for as his own like personal friend, bodyguard dude. But paid for as his own personal friend. Yeah, Grace. They're pay for friends. Buy a friend. I would like to buy Ephraim for a friend, please. Okay. He's just bits now. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But you know what else we get here, PJ? Hmm. In this graphic novel, we get our second canonical sex scene that's more than just we had sex in blackout page that we got from Darrow and Mustang, of which I'm still grumpy about. But we get a sex. We get like they're intimate. There's a relationship for a book of which we said was already kind of like, why aren't you? Why are you blacking out the swear words? They have a sex scene inside. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we know that they have sex because they have a kid. But do we, though? Because. I think this is audio drama again. The carver is the one deciding the gender of the baby. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I, I don't yeah. know if I don't know if the baby was born out of sex at all. I think you're right. The other part of this that is a little bit confusing is they. This is an audio drama thing again. They mention like going back and forth all the time, as opposed to like going back and forth to go like sneak in to see him. And that's not something that's in the graphic novel. Mm-hmm. Um, they only go the once to set it all up and to do the womb thing. And again. Do the womb thing. Do well to get the womb changed and to get, like make sure that the spermy sperms do the womb <laughs> thing. <laughs> that it's all compatible. Which also the other part of this graphic novel that this actually kind of sorts out a little bit is some of our arguments a little bit. It doesn't fully, but at the very least, it made a very good case for um, the reason that they aren't really different species. And it reminded me of a core point, right? Which is that the gestation cycles are dramatically altered with drugs, not 
naturally occurring processes. So they are effectively drugging people to have them at different cycles to ensure that they are specific sizes for the adaptations that they need them for. So that was another small thing that my brain was like, oh, yeah, duh. I fucking can't believe I forgot that. Um, But I think it's also like a one-off line. But it was made a really big point here because obviously it's critical to why Brynn and Fitchner can't have kids and are so different. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. That was brought up, I think, in the first section, uh, Child in Iraq. They were talking about that. Yeah, I think. Golds have to carry nine months to term. Other colors have gestating drugs, stuff like that. Yeah. Sex scene. We love it. We love it. Here is my number one problem with the audiobook, though. You ready? You fucking ready for it? Mm -hmm. It is this, and I I wrote it down. You can fuck a red, but you can't marry or liaison one. And that's just not true. You cannot fuck a red. There's no context in which it has ever been described as okay to sleep with a low color outside of a pink. Um, Ever. Right. So far as I'm aware, not once it was, it was supposed to be, it was like Shane. There was, and maybe it's because we're peerless scars again. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's a part of the problem again, is we're just sitting in that like elite hubbub of society. But I, I seriously, and it doesn't show up in the, it doesn't show up in the comic. Nope. Yep. I, I would go as far to say as you're right. Um, there's a, there's a line from Quicksilver. Because it's a small matter to bet a yep. low color, but marrying yep. one? It doesn't sound like it's legal still. It's a small matter as in probably not worth death, but it doesn't sound like it's acceptable. Right. Right. The 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 usage of the word to fuck a low color is okay, but not to marry or liaise on one, which is an adaptation of the line that's given before in the previous chapter is what I find to be the screwiest bit of lore on top of this whole thing mm-hmm. uh, because it's never been mentioned that anyone would fuck a different color ever with the right. exception of these mutant hybrids that and have been pinks. made very clear to be mutants yeah and what and pinks and pinks right so i'd be curious to see what the actual like i'd be curious to see what pierce actually says about that what his actual like head canon that would be a reasonable question. It was ne- it was never really brought up before, but it felt so clearly wrong by all their standards that when I heard that, I, I literally paused it, I rewound it, played it, paused it, rewound it, played it, paused it, picked up my comic book, rewound it, played it, and stared at the comic book. I was like, that's not contextual. There's nothing there to support that. I don't know where you're pulling that from. What are you talking about? Um, mm-hmm. That was That was the only line, though. That was yeah. was the only thing that really well one of the few things that like really tore me out of the audio drama just being a little bit disconnected from from canon, mm-hmm. um, which is fine. To be clear, like this is an adaptation of a work that Pierce had a hand in, but was not the actual full one hundred percent creator of. Yeah, it's like so, three steps removed, basically, yeah. or two steps removed, whichever way you want to think about it. Yeah, so I, it's completely forgivable to me, Mm -hmm. as long as it's not being presented as a canonical work. Yeah, the audio drama, right? Mm -hmm. Again, not it's not a massive sticking point, and I wouldn't like bet my house on this or like you know, or anything crazy on this. But this is us getting the screaming nerd territory about canon (laughs) and like (laughs) feeling. You're right. (laughs) Feeling like possessive of 
a story that we didn't write. So, mm. you know, like is whatever. But right. at the same time, we spent a lot of time here and we we've, we've dedicated <laughs> a lot of we've dedicated almost a year to this story itself. More than a year at this point. But yeah. The only other thing, so obviously this chapter we move we move home with the idea of obviously they get married. Um, they're making kind of that decision to move in together and to bring Rihanna with to Mars. That's a big sticking point for um, Mama Brin. Yeah, so we we basically end this heading there, but we do cut back to the heist. Mm-hmm. And in I've... the graphic novel, there's the Devourers, and that was odd. Mm-hmm. reading in the graphic novel i was like what the fuck is this shit um even though i know violets i was like is this what what because <laughs> they're like semi semi-humanoid and i was like they you felt, feel like they would they felt like the uh the mutated obsidian that we see at the end of yeah dark age mm-hmm. very similar but before we get to that mentioning the fact that he's bringing Bryn off world is it just in the audio drama or is it in the graphic novel as well? Because at this point, I'm having trouble keeping them straight. That no, they bring both. Yeah. No, no, no. Oh, where where Bryn explicitly says, like, am I just going to be a pet that can't leave and can't hold your hand and can't, like, walk in the park with you? No, Bryn, Bryn says that in the graphic novel. Yeah. Not right. So, like, I don't think it's quite that long because I think that dialogue goes on longer in the audio drama but it is in textually it's in the yeah because it's yeah. almost exactly the same as what she's complaining about later and Fitch- what, if, what eventually like, happens what do you think was gonna happen like and that feels shitty you know but it is what it, it is. also feels like a 19 year old's promise which i think is another interesting component here you know that's true. like that's true yeah because he was definitely like, well, what did you think was going to happen? And it's like, well, uh, you, you promised bud. it would. <laughs> um, but yeah. But uh, at the same time, he doesn't ever say like, yes to those things. Yeah. Right. But he does take her sister and brings her along too. You know, at mm. the very least, like there's that. She can, she's got a playmate. <laughs> Jesus, that's a bad way to put it, man. I don't feel good about that <laughs> joke. <laughs> I was looking around the room for a long time <laughs> after I said that out loud. Uh, oops! <laughs> oh no! Uh, but yeah, the devourers. I I really that was the strangest one for me, to be honest. Um, from the graphic novels, that was the one thing where I was like, "Huh." And that's actually where the graphic audio did better and explained what violet carved creatures were, and took the time instead of just like putting the devourers and then like making us kind of question and assume. It then explained that they were carved by violets and what violets do to create things. Um, kind of gave like the canon explanation for violets. So. Yeah, I just I feel like those would show up more often if there were yeah, really humanoid, semi-intelligent like carvings that the, that people knew about. The audio drama like also way more. Yeah, common. that's a good point on people knowing about them and thought about that. This was the only thing that I didn't really like about the graphic novel. Like, yeah. actually, um, it, I was it, just a, it was just a little weird. It didn't fit. It felt um, it felt like it also felt like it was written for cliffhangers sake, especially becomes because it comes right at the end of that issue where it's like, oh, we have a new threat introduced, which is fairly common for comics in general to do something like that. But I feel I, like you could have done something else in universe. I wish it would have been like 
a captured band of the cannibalistic obsidian. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that would have done it. With that, we move into chapter four, Double Life on Mars. I think I made a little bit of mention of this earlier, but when they land, the similar world building that happens is very similar to what we see with Lyria between Rihanna and Bryn is they experience kind of the the call of the arch governor in this case, which I would compare to Mustangs, you're free and here's like your future inside of the society feels very reminiscent. It feels very sci-fi. It's very evocative. It's great. It reminds us that Nero is the governor here, which is great. I I just, you know, it's good. It's good. It's a good one. It's good. I liked it. I like the world building. Fucking Nero. Fucking Nero. (laughs) Hear me up. Up until this point, I was thinking we were in a world pre-Nero. I also was, which is why I looked because up his age, Because for the record. They talk about robots in this. Didn't they talk about medbots? No, there, there's something oh, bots. Something bots. The copper, the copper says that reds are cheaper than robots. That's what it is, which I think we made mention of a bit ago. Or the, whoever's talking with him on Triton talks about the, the expendability of reds over robots. I was under the impression that Nero was the reason why robots didn't exist. Nero isn't the reason that robots don't exist. Nero is also, but is, Nero is also very afraid of robots. He is actively against robots because he basically has the problem where he believes that Skynet will come, um, which is a very valid reason, <laughs> right? But Nero, Nero has like a fear of robots that is strict that does not line up strictly with the society's reason that they don't use robots. The reason society doesn't use robots is because it makes more sense to like have this army of subjugated people and they're more versatile and can be trained for specific tasks and are easier to mold. Yeah. Easier to to mold. Yeah. Right. So the, the slave that you can give specific commands is better than, you know, something that someone would have to work on and program and whatnot. So that's, that's why they went that way. Robots don't have to sleep. So we, we move on from there, of course, to uh, actually meeting Regulus who had been funding, of course, the, the trip out to Titan was responsible for kind of his, his trip. Uh, so we meet Quicksilver, right? And one of the things that I found very interesting in reading the comics, and I think this is more of a theory than proven, but it feels like the pink that is standing around Quicksilver in that scene is Mateo. It feels like it's the only logical conclusion. I didn't for it think to... that it'd be anybody else. Okay. All right. I, I just, I, I brought it up in a couple of different forums and contexts, and I was like, I think it's Mateo. And it's like, yeah, I think it's a spe- it especially should be Mateo, because when Quicksilver later threatens him with, like, the love and affection of, of a lower color, it's really interesting because Quicksilver is effectively being cheeky with his own relationship in a way that he has with Mateo, right? And then adds some weight to it. I think there's context that says how long Quicksilver has been with Mateo. And I want to say it's like 35 years. You might be right. I do not remember the Mateo relationship, but I think that makes sense. Um, And again, I think it makes sense for a ton of reasons, because we also have the connection through uh, the idea that, like, obviously, Mateo was helping out Dancer and is like a part of the Rising as well. And once we learn that Quicksilver is a part of the Rising, their connection naturally makes sense. And I think that that would be a way to not tie the two ships together in its own way. Yeah. But to have them kind of communicate effectively. Yeah. Um, I, I never got an impression that it was anybody other than Mateo. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's never mentioned explicitly. That's you know? true. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe maybe so. that's 
Maybe that's an intentional thought because we meet Mateo so early on in Red Rising. Mm-hmm. Maybe that preserves some sort of like spoilers for somebody that were to read this and then get into the series. Like it, it's not a big thing, but it's something. Yeah, yeah. Because even at the end, like the end of this is effectively him saying, you know, I am. Uh, I am Ares, but we don't really know what Ares is. You know, at this point, you'd have to actually read Red Rising. No, to we understand. do. It's early. It's early. You hear about Ares. We were constantly. I was constantly wondering oh, no. if Ares actually existed. Correct. All that I'm saying is that, like, you you wouldn't know the connection to Quicksilver from the connection to Ares to true. Mateo. Like, you wouldn't backward en- engineer that entire connection That's from true. this interaction that we see in the graphic novel. That's more what I meant, um, but, you mm-hmm. know, yeah, as it goes. Uh, I'm not finding anything easily, so I will not comment further on that. But um, what I what I would say is that, at the very least, this, this adds a layer to his threat, right? Because he's threatening him because he knows that he can use the fact that he has Bryn here on Mars against him to kind of pull for his needs and pull for his wants um, with the assassination attempt but at the same time he is obviously a complete hypocrite because he's fucking mateo and like married and wants to marry mateo and has kind of him in his back pocket so it's it's an interesting layer of hypocrisy to like make ends meet which i only say specifically because it's silver versus gold right and that's not kosher with the society standard i don't see it as hypocrisy i see it as sort of not recklessness but he understands the weight of the situation sure and he also understands if somebody were to expose him yeah i mean that's a big deal he's wielding it like blackmail right like it is it is blackmail mm-hmm. so we we do move on from this to the actual scene of course did, did you have anything else in the reaction between quicksilver and he by the way did you any other thoughts on quick we do see his his vulnerability. Like he is a smart, well connected, wealthy person. Mm-hmm. Fishner could have just popped his head. Yeah, just popped him. Yeah, and we don't really see that vulnerability from Quicksilver going forward ever. Like nobody really physically threatens Quicksilver later on. As yeah, far as I can remember, of, like Mustang kind of does by shooting past him, obviously, and like blowing up the sculpture. But that's not, you know, yeah, that's not meant to be. a. That's not the same. It's intimidation <laughs> more than anything it else. Is, but, but, yeah. but it's it was cool. It was yeah. a level of vulnerability that I felt like we needed from Quicksilver a little bit. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we do move on from Quicksilver, of course, to the job that Quicksilver gives him, which is to be an assassin hunting Theron Al Atler for Quicksilver, of course. Uh, This, I think, is a great representation of what we question a lot earlier on in the series of what he was doing for Quicksilver, why he was, you know, why he had to go to Quicksilver in the first place. And that's predominantly money. And then on top of that, it's blackmail. And that's the reason that he really has to continue to work for Quicksilver is that he is aware of Bryn. Um and that's why you'd have a peerless guard be stuck in a situation where he's working far under his station. Yeah. Yeah. But he called him sir before he even knew that he, that Quicksilver knew about Bryn. Yeah. I mean, he's still 
Fitzgerald's still a respectful dude, That's and like true. he's Regulus Al's son. He's a huge deal, and he funded his job out. Like he bought the contract for Fitzgerald to go work out on. There's another. Triton. There's another thing that I feel like was just in the audio drama. Um, the hmm. focus on if we do this together, we could be as wealthy as Julia's. No, that's a specific that. line. They dwell on it quite a bit. Oh yeah, in they, the audio drama, he says a lot before that in the audio drama for sure. As opposed to like we could just and be after. as wealthy as fucking Julia's, which is what it says in the graphic novel. Back to Mister Adler, um, we go to chasing him down, of course, and we track him down to the opera of which is Tristan und Isolde by Wagner. Yeah, which is a, a opera. It's a story about opera. I'm not familiar. I am also not familiar, PJ. Okay. So I can't I can't be helpful here, but I can tell <laughs> you that that's the opera. It's in German as anything most anything by Richard Wagner is. Um, that's my best impression. Yeah, there was no noise, but it was hilarious. Oh, could you not hear it? Oh no, there was no noise. <laughs> Your microphone cut it out. Definitely noise. Oh, well, Discord cut it out. Discord cut it out. <laughs> yeah, Discord was like, that's not PJ's voice. <laughs> <laughs> that's shrill enough that we're pretty sure it's <laughs> it's getting our noise sad. gate. That's perfect. That's hilarious. But obviously, this is this is the moment that we get inside of the novel, the graphic novel here, that includes piss. It's so important that each book features a brief portion of someone getting pissed on in some fashion, and this keeps that tradition alive. In a good <laughs> way, though. on his shoes. This is in, yeah. like, a fun way. <laughs> this is a fun pissing. <laughs> Not like your brother's pissings. This is a fun pissing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> honestly it's expertly done it's an <laughs> expertly done way to like get somebody to duel you yeah pisses on his shoes and then like he's like stop it and he's like no <laughs> it's like, here now your pants match And then he's and then he like he he like challenges him to duel and then he kind of like backs off. Aller's like maybe I don't want to duel him. <laughs> like I just I don't know if it's worth it. And then he's he's like nah yeah never mind. I could have seen that being like going either way. Even if he like tried to play the high road and like just mm-hmm. fucking ignore him and leave. Like that could have been the signal to go in and like fight me, bitch. Yeah, like the impetus to be like fight me. You said you were going to fight me. We're going to fight now. It's a blood feud. Even, even if he never said, like, even if he never said anything and just ignored yeah. him, like, you're going to ignore me, bitch. Fight me at dawn. Mm-hmm. Like, just go off on him. Like, there, there are so many different paths that could have taken, even if he had played the high road from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. maybe, hypothetically... Fitchner's piss was acidic, and it would have eventually eaten through him anyway. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think he's got the figment in him, because I don't think the figment exists yet. Ooh, what's Ooh. Quicksilver doing? Mm. That's a good question, because we're getting a lot of Quicksilver in this novel, too. And that's mm. true. It that's is It is very great that this is called the Sons of Ares, not 
Ares because it is as much it is more of an introduction to Fitchner's role but it is also an introduction to Quicksilver's involvement so in both ways it's it's good and the organization itself right right I I don't think we hit that by the end of this necessarily not at all but and what we we'll talk about that when we get to it but Ares um, is like the last word no the beginning is the last word yeah right but right Still. Yeah, absolutely. So we move on from this basically to the duel that happens the next day in the park. We we get a little interstitial scene where he comes home late um, to to uh, Brandon kind of li- has to lie to her a little bit um, about like kind of the goings on and gets a little aggressive, actually, which was a little odd. I thought character wise, I didn't feel like he was lying. He not, just was not lying. He was aggressive and like not telling the honest. I, I mean, like he just said lie that- by omission. I don't know if you could even consider it that. Yes, I guess technically lying by yeah, omission. It's not but quite he, that. I'm just I'm trying to think of anything better, and I can't yet. But he was but. he was insensitive about it. He's mm-hmm. like, the, my That's employer better. is having me do these things. It's not going to get better. And then Bryn's yeah. like sitting there, laying against, like facing away from him, crying mm-hmm. as he's just kind of crawling into bed, saying like, "No, oh, this is how it is now." Yep. Ah, yeah, yep, yep. So the duel, though, the depiction of the duel itself is fantastic, I think. I think that it's a great, it's a great moment, like we've talked about, with with how you can depict a lot of these duels in action. And you can Mm -hmm. kind of have them be like these these swatting matches and like have the knee to the chest happen and sort of the low to the ground and the walk away. And, you know, you can can depict this both graphically, I can see it, obviously, because you can see it on the fucking page. But then on top of that, you can imagine it pretty cleanly, yeah. Visually, um, we also in the series we don't get any duels that aren't within like a designated dueling location or bleeding place. This is just in a park. Like there are people yeah. walking around behind them. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, "Yep, here we are." <laughs> it's like Central Park, and one guy's about to get decapitated. <laughs> Let me go get my coffee. <laughs> I'm supposed to be can't chess over there in coffee. like 20 minutes. <laughs> um, the one of the one of the quotes that's added here by the audio drama, I I appreciated um, when they're going into this is in. So he talks about like grabbing a razor out of Quicksilver's arsenal. I believe in the audio drama. I don't think that's talked about at all. I think it's entirely invented for the audio drama and not yeah. mentioned at all in the graphic novel. Mm-hmm. Um. But he's he's like, I grabbed the oldest, most beaten down looking razor so as to like try to deceive him, um, Atler, in, inside their duel when he's arming himself. But then when he's dueling him, the reason that he says that he chose those that razor is in the words of Lornow Arcos, in a young man's game, always bet on the oldest fucker you see. And I was like, that's that's pretty good. It's it's a new Lorne quote, and I'm always a sucker for new Lorne quotes. Does that make uh, sense to Lorne, though? Yeah, it does. It seems fictionalized, which it is why I'm like... It does seem fictionalized. Yeah. There you go. Right. That makes sense. Right. That's that's where my brain went with it, is it's like, this is a this is but a summary quote where he's paraphrasing, you know? like In the words of... Yeah, right. But I, 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 I guess... Mean, fair that, point. Again, audio drama, like... Yeah. <laughs> I, feel like that's, I feel like that's my emergency eject button on a lot of this, it's the audio <laughs> <No>. drama, but... <laughs> but but also, that seems like something Fitchner would say, too. Another note from the audio drama on this section is 
he describes after they're done, after he's decapitated Atler, describes the fighting style that he's using as a razor wielder as being a hint of granite falcon. And I was like, that's completely new. I don't know what that is. That's completely new. <laughs> granite falcon. Yeah, granite falcon. It reminds me of what I do want more out of in expansion of the series, which is there's got to be more than three fucking styles of fighting. You're kidding me? Like we're there are all kinds of ink, like all kinds of sword styles using different weapons and whatnot over the course of of regular history. There's got to be here. Obviously, fucking Shadowfall uses a longer hosta and the shorter uh, the shorter razor as well in combination. So like, there's got to be more. Yeah, that's true. It's what I'm wanting. It's what I want. And at the same time, I'm left wanting by you just dropping that this is Griffin, Granite, Granite, gr- whatever the fuck it was. Um, Falcon. Granite, granite, granite Griffin. Granite Falcon. <sighs> I don't even. Granite Falcon. There it is in the notes. But yeah. Um, it just leaves me wanting more just saying that it is Granite Falcon. It's like, okay, but what's Granite Falcon? Like you didn't, you didn't, you didn't give me much. Um, and then we, of course, get the kind of, not necessarily an ultimatum, but the presentation of an option of choice from Bryn to make their family a family and not be this kind of home that's just trapped, you know, just I'm just living at home for you to like come home. <sighs> choice, right? And this is this is sort of the decision to venture out and find a carver to fix Bryn and kind of all the stuff that we know from Golden Sun. Yeah. And this is kind of the the callback to what she says earlier in that a home isn't the structure. It's what's in it or something Mm -hmm. like that. Yes. Yeah. That's the line. Not as eloquently said by PJ, but (laughs) you get the point. I I can't remember the exact quote, but it's something similar to that effect. Just as a side note, and then we'll, we'll jump right back into this. There are a number of recurring motifs that pop up. Like the lamb and the scythe is a big one. That's mentioned a bunch of times there's the like outrun like running away until you can turn around and face it which is a big deal between you know arturius it almost feels like there's so many different recurring themes that none of them was given enough time properly to you know yeah Um, like too many ideas floating around and like maybe cut one like cut one of those central or give give more give give more course we go to the carver uh zora ball which is a great name we love zora ball as a name uh and he <laughs> ends up carving together the option gives the choice of the the child i think also another thing is i think the choice is um or the like have two kids joke is one that's only present in the audio drama not in the novel however the choice is still presented in the in the graphic novel um, number of touches like that I love. I, I really enjoyed kind of some of those humor humor flourishes. I feel like they nailed more often than not and very tense conversations. But yeah, so we're, we're presented with this choice. They both say a boy. He'll be a gold like you um, kind of go through that through that motions. Did you have any thoughts on, on the decision to have Sephiro? So there is this is something we've talked about a lot in regards mm-hmm. to packs. Yep. Um. Do we now know, or at least have a better understanding of the way the carver works and the way it genetically changes them? Um, so, like, are we to assume that Pax is half-breed by name only and genetically is full gold? Because at the time, they're both gold parents. 
even though by birth they're not? This sorts out none of that issue, really. Okay. And the other part of that issue is what we talked about at the very beginning of this, just for a second, is that a lot of the changes that are made are induced by drugs in colors. Right. Yep. In managing the population. So. So if, if a red were to get pregnant without notifying anybody else, could they have just a normal human child outside of color? Don't know. I, we never get we never get strict examples of that. My assumption is, is that they're monitored. And so, you know, like that's this is where like I would love something that would explain this. But coppers are generally like underexplained, but they're known to be the managers. Right. And yellows are also underutilized in our understanding outside of war. So this is where I would believe that a copper yellow structure would exist where they would be monitoring. They'd notice something like that. The yellows would show up induce whatever and like fuck with it. And that would be like their job. Okay effectively you know like that's that's a system a substructure that we don't see that's how i imagine it would work but we do not get that explanation okay i wasn't sure if this bled any of that information into it the other part of that that i would say is that the board of quality control would probably kill that child fuck them yeah i agree yes they're (laughs) bad (laughs) they are very bad (laughs) as we as we get into even more later (laughs) they're Mustang was part of that shit. She worked for them for a bit. <laughs> she didn't like it though. She was an intern. <laughs> Effectively. <laughs> Basically an intern. An unpaid intern. Uh <laughs> I don't know about unpaid. Well but. I mean it was it was definitely basically an internship. I, I totally agree with you. I just thought that I think that it's funny to think about, like, would she be an unpaid intern? Does that even matter? Because her dad is the <laughs> oh the governor of Mars, you know, like Yeah. Fuck. None of that matters. <laughs> um but <laughs> Again, weird nerd ship. Here we are. So, yeah, fuck. Obviously, we have Severo. It's it's a great time. And um, we also then subsequently get a the abduction. Don't we get the abduction right here, too? Or do we? No, we, we mm-hmm. get the we get the current flash. So what we do is this is this is the each of these chapters basically ends with the the prelude going back to the heist. And so this is where we see that. Bryn and Severo have been abducted by Arturius. We don't understand why yet, but we know that they've been abducted. Um, We're in the board of quality control at the end of this chapter. With them. right, 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 yeah, right. Yep, we yeah. do get that. Weirdly, because chapter five has a cover that I remember, which is her sitting in a chair. So we move into, uh, God, what do they call it when it's a taco cat? Uh, palindrome. Yeah, we move into the palindrome chapter, Raw War, which it's not my favorite chapter title. <laughs> I'm gonna be honest. I don't know why we palindromed this, guys. <laughs> I didn't even notice it. <laughs> it's so clearly delineated on the page. I didn't There's read a line it. between separated I was so, portraits. I was, I, I, I was oh, looking okay. at the pictures. It's an intense scene. It's a- <laughs> And I wasn't looking at the chapter. I didn't even know it was called Raw War. Oh, no. Oh, no. That's funny. All right. Yeah. This one hit me because when I was flipping through it originally, like before I had started reading it, I was like flipping just through to like look at um, art because I was trying to find the uh, reverse covers on the back because I knew that there were bonus covers. And I want to see the. I had started reading the first one and I wanted to see the alternate issue cover and I hit Raw War and I was like, is that does that say I don't. I'm not, I can't, this is a spoiler. <laughs> it's like, 
<laughs> then when I got to it, I was like, this isn't better. Like, it didn't, <laughs> context did not improve this title. <laughs> uh, but we tried. <laughs> Needless to say. We, we did our best. We did our best. So we, of course, find out a lot more about what is going on between Arturius and Bryn. They have a large conversation in the room arguing she's inter- she's being interrogated by him. She's unwilling to give up Fitchner, even though he already knows the truth. He's fully aware of it. We get some very well um, shown scenes of like him stalking Fitchner, basically, to have like seen and heard the interactions that are going on at different times, points in time. So that he, that's how he becomes aware. He's stalking uh, Zora ball. He interviews Zora ball, explains the wolf ring, basically running through the whole chapter at this point. Uh, but the, these are all kind of the different components that go in. And then we get the confrontation at the estate. Um, and this is sort of the kind of Arturius, you know, side of the plot. Um, for the chapter we got we get a lot more of other plot from the heist because we really resume the heist in force in this section again but Mm -hmm. would you would you think of the uh, arturius plot and sort of the you know um i think it makes sense just contextually it makes sense for him to be the one to come back as the villain yeah oh for sure like he was set up that way it makes total sense and at the same time, it was pretty satisfying to see that. Come I liked it a lot. Like that. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, God, do I want more out of him, though? Kind of. Yeah. Like, he's it, a really interesting character. He's an interesting character that kind of falls flat just based on not being in a medium where he can really explain himself that well mm-hmm. and be explored with that much detail. Um, the best explanation that we really get from him is in these last two chapters, right? This is when we really kind of understand how hurt he was by Fitchner, right? And sort of the actions that, that Fitchner took, um, of abandoning him. But also he is a total bloated asshole for not realizing how he being abandoned by Arturius was also a fucking bad thing, um, for him. Like he was abandoned. This never would have happened if he wouldn't if he would have been a man and like manned up against his mom, you know, I'd love to see that scene replayed that scene replayed from Arturius's perspective. Mm, Yeah. Give us that POV. Give that POV because intentionally Fitchner basically just writes him off halfway through not even listening to the conversation. And it's like, I also can't hear it because of the cars. Yeah. But even even so. Yeah, when he, he comes back to enough. explain it, yeah, he's like, I'm not even listening. I'm not even hearing mm-hmm. what he's saying. I just know what's happening. And I'd love to see what was actually said. And Oh, you're okay, you're talking about the post-conversation. I was thinking yeah. about the conversation with mom. Yeah, right. Yeah. I'd like he to see summarizes. that, too. Yep, yep. Which but the audio drama gives us. The audio drama gives us the mom conversation. It does. But I, I don't trust the audio drama at this point. And I'd like to see, like, I'd (laughs) like to see it from from Arturius's (laughs) perspective. And like, maybe he's not, maybe he's not trying to fuck over Fitchner and like abandon him. Maybe he's trying to say like, hey, we got to play this cool a little bit. Let things die down. She's pissed. She doesn't see this like as, as a valid relationship between golds. We're going to prove her wrong. Here's my plan. 
and may, like maybe that's what was going to happen. And Fitchner's just like fuck you and like walks out the door. Mm-hmm. I I agree with you. I would I would love to see kind of the full conversation because I think the other part of that is that there is clearly brotherly love here that's been established throughout the institute but it also feels like there's unrequited one-sided love from how much arturius actually cares about fitchner um be it you know maybe overvaluing the french be it any number of things but it does feel like there's there is something more than platonic from arturius's side given how much he kind of how much he puts on that relationship he values fitchner's relationship with them so high that even he isn't willing to kill both of the people in his life. He just like, even at the very end, we're kind of skipping ahead and that's okay because this all kind of blend. These last two books really blend together um, as the action develops. But um, in the end, he's given the choice between Bryn and Severo and Arturius didn't need to provide that fucking choice. Like he could have just fucking killed him, but he did. also don't see Bryn die. I, uh, that scene is meant to be like her being burnt alive in the there is it i can't remember how it's described in red right that is what it's meant to be i'm expecting her to come back in okay well we know bryn is dead we know um, she dies in the at regular some series point. yeah okay. but yeah, i don't fair. think she's dead now and i think that's going to be a ter- this is my predictions later on but okay <laughs> We, I, didn't, like, I didn't even think to like put predictions in for the most part but like i of course we have predictions so naturally i don't know why i thought to skip over those so um, <laughs> we i'll get into it i'll get into it like, yeah. that's my okay. primary right. prediction like that's the only one i okay. actually have thought out what do you what do you make of the the comment to the very least between like the relationship i don't know if i see did you it, see any undertones okay i i see it more as this is a man, this is a boy who has grown up yeah. with the ex- expectation of leading and of being powerful and being of a certain station. And mm-hmm. it seems like Fitchner is the only one that really followed him. As far as, as far as we can tell, like he's the prominent, most, the most prominent one, at least. He's the, um, he's also the primus of Jupiter, so like he's definitely a leader. But he is, yeah, that's a good point. I don't know. It it just seemed like it seemed less friendly and more wanting to lead with the sort of feign of friendship to a, sure. at, at a certain point. Like especially when he calls Fitchner over and is just fucked up by the time he gets there remembers that he asked for drugs and that's about it doesn't remember that he invited fitchner there but like remembers that he wanted fitchner to bring drugs like it it was so not caring of him as a person and didn't feel that friendly at that point yeah okay to to extend my point just a smidge it feels like it's it that scene in particular makes it feel more like it was a drunk dial like a calling an act like that made that was like that was that was one of those moments when i was like hmm this maybe has some subtext to it but it's, again i don't think it's critical like i you know but even in that even more in that of a curiosity call, i guess this this doesn't really back up what i was saying at all um and just kind of adds to more confusion in that call 
he says that he can't deal with these people sober. Mm-hmm. Which is the kind of to me implies that he's sober right now and doesn't want to be, but wants to get fucked up with Fitchner. And then by the time yeah. he gets there, he's fucked up and doesn't remember inviting Fitchner, but remembers asking Fitchner for drugs. Yes. Yeah. Which definitely like muddies what you were saying a little bit, but also I feel like it I feel like this is meant to be kind of a lingering question. And obviously, like this is a this is a a late stage society. There's all kinds of gender fluidity, whatever, and sex, sexuality fluidity that all exists and is totally acceptable. I just feel like he is also pining after Fitchner in his own way, which is also I can, why I don't think he can ever choose to hurt Fitchner so hard. I can see that. I, I didn't get that off my read, but I can absolutely see it. And I'm yeah. not trying to like disagree with you by any means. No, but I, I'm, I'm just trying to like explain what I was thinking throughout it. It's also not the craziest, most solid argument in the world ever because this is a graphic novel and we do get a lot less characterization than we normally would. However, the two out of the characters that we get, Alturius is one that we get, Arturius is one that we get a ton from. So, mm-hmm. you know. it At the very least, it feels like their perception of their relationship and how that last interaction went is at odds with each other. Oh, for sure. Great call. Yeah. They're definitely at odds. Like, at in, at, in, at like the in very least, we know that's true because yeah. this doesn't happen if they both understand to the same. Like, if they both have Fitchner's view of this, mm-hmm. this confusion doesn't go forward. No. Yeah. Not at all. Totally, totally true. Cool. All right. So that's most of Raw War. Um, the other component here, though, is uh, there's there's another like little bit that I find very interesting. Uh, there's a ton. Of course, there's the ongoing heist. There's a lot of action scenes that are fantastic. There's moments where Cyrus is breaking into things and hacking shit that's awesome. But again, it falls into that like Pierce Brown uh, Red Rising series action where it's like, this is just really cool. And like, I don't what else do we say outside of I really fucking liked it. Like it was it was great. Um, any thoughts on the action yeah it was super fucking cool it was cool like it also (laughs) added a lot of depth to some of these shots to like see these people being shot at by other people to see like the different jump decapitations you can imagine a lot of this stuff so clearly because of the medium so absolute boon to the storytelling here but on top of that Bryn actually deceives Arturius and gets his razor for a second and has the opportunity to decapitate him but chooses not to i think that's massive i think that's massive for her character and her understanding of of like what she would do uh, i think that a lot of the i can't remember if it was in the book or the audio drama again but um it's made a point of that like they the fitchers thought that he saw the low colors like reacting whenever they do something against a gold or other color as like a negative thing you know the specifically the two reds um doran and re rihanna rihanna so we said rihanna um we're reacting negatively Ryanna, to i think is what rihanna 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 is what we said rihanna rihanna but yeah i there's you know there are components there but brain's choice to not decapitate him and to instead just go yeah i mean it would have been easier to just fucking kill him. But it's not her bag. She's not a violent person at all. No, and I don't know if it actually would have worked that well. 
No, because truly Arturius is also hiding all of this for Fitchner. And, and Arturius is, he has to talk people down from like apprehending them later on, I mm-hmm. feel like. Yeah, he he initiate he stops the code red and the lurcher squads and everything like that right yeah. at the end. Um, yeah, so they would have been home fucked. Yeah, but they're kind of fucked either way. So I don't know. Yeah, right, right. So we move on from there into uh, part six, chapter six. Unless you do you have anything else in five that you can think of? Nah. It's nah. just it's such a great heist movie. It's fantastic. Love it's such a great heist movie. <laughs> <laughs> heist movie comic book so we move into chapter six which is birth of a myth which you know this is this is the beginning of the foundation of Ares and the sons of Ares, as we talk with quicksilver and whatnot um this so this is fantastic but fitchner jumping to save severo when Bryn chooses to drop him down to her is such a fantastic moment this is another one in the audio drama that they made very clear by using discrepancies in the audio and the sound profile of where it's coming through on your headphones to make it very clear the direction that it was coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that a lot of that was great. Um, yeah. Yeah. I just, oof. both in depiction on page and screen, the song, all of it was just, is heart wrenching. And this yeah. is the last time that Fitcher and Brynn see each other. Potentially. Potentially. Yeah. I'm saying potentially for your sake, because for, that's for this belief. book. Yes. I don't think he's we'll get into it. We'll get into the predictions later. Yeah. I felt this is part of the story that I felt like the audio drama actually did better because it really fleshed it out and made it feel heavier because in the, in the graphic novel, it's one page is this whole thing happens in one page more or less. Yeah. The, the dropping, the dropping of, uh, Severo and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Is pretty much it's two pages, three pages actually, because that's where like the song sing song starts. One, two, three, four. Yeah, catch. And then Arturius notices, jumps down, and then that happens over the course of like two pages. So it's it's a section, but regardless, there's not a whole lot. Like it's mostly art to show the action, right? To show the falling and jumping, to show mm-hmm. the signal of like the the reason that Fisher notices because Severo dropped the toy. And, you know, like all those small, you know, little things to kind of feed into that scene. Right. Whereas I think in the audio drama, Fitchner has to call up to her. Uh, No, the toy still falls, but he he also shouts up at her. Yeah. She also does in the graphic novel. Does he? Okay. Yeah. He says Bryn down here because she doesn't see him. So she doesn't know that that's an option. So he calls up either way. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Again. I don't blame you because we've got not fully conflicting versions of the stories, but extra details that muddy and it's muddy hard, the timeline. It's hard to remember what comes from what and yeah. what overlaps and what doesn't. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's interesting. I'm glad I'm kind of glad that we chose to review it this way. I do. I am too. for the sake of kind of this. This type of conversation is very unique. And um, I intend to do it the same way next time. Would you change anything? We can no. get into that later, too. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm all over the place. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I would definitely not change it. I don't think. Um, okay. But we can talk about that in a second. So the the line here that we kind of talked about is, uh, and I, I like I like the kind of moment that happens when Fitchner is holding Severo and Arturius jumps down 
and is there and he's like, I, I gave you mercy, chops off his hand. Uh, he says, you know, Fitchner says, I'll kill you in response. And then he loses his hand at the moment. I think it's a great sign of like what the razor can do and sort of the, the flexibility again, like you said, like the, the whip, the ribbon whip that it should be very cool. Um, but then he says, and what did you do? What did you do? You spat in my eye. You chose a slave over me, over me. And then it cuts with the uh, image of them holding up their fists post-Institute around him. And I fucking love that. Yeah. As as a comparison of them being friends, you know, the, the per aspera ad astra chant. And that, that friendship in less time is almost better than Cassius and Darrow's friendship. And some of that's because of the betrayal happening at different points in their lives. So, like, hard to say. But that very meaningful character interaction here. And a fantastic relationship built throughout this graphic novel that I didn't expect to fully care about. And by the end, I was upset. That, so. that over me comment gives a lot more credence to your theory. Yes, and I forgot about it. <laughs> um, like over over me in both contexts. Like it's over me in, in the friend context too, where it's like we we fought together. We did all this together. We've done all this. But then on top of that, like his contemplation of like, is it because she's a lower color? Is it because he's in love with him? Yeah. And I, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's tough. Mm-hmm. It's tough for sure. But right. yeah. But Ugh. there's there's absolutely a question there. Yeah, there's there's a, enough to like. I don't feel like I'm reaching that far, but it's definitely not textual fully. Right. Um. Agreed. But yeah. Oh God. I love the way this ends, man. I love the way that this this ends. Um. With basically the heist being up, we've lost Doran along the way. Um. Does Phoenix die? Do we lose? No, we don't lose Phoenix. No. Um. No. Uh, we just lose, we only lose Doran to the Devourers. No one else dies. Right. Um, from this, this group or anything like that. But yeah. Yeah. So I, that's pretty much the end. Um, did you have any other, I mean, there's like a debrief conversation that happens with Quicksilver. There's the choice, of course, between Bryn and Severo, which we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, anything else you want to reiterate? Well, so this is where my prediction comes in. This is actually like the point where. I'm going to be sort of extrapolating a little bit. And that's sure. the conversation when Fitchner shows up with Rihanna and she's like, we have to go back for her. And he says, she's already dead. The audio drama extrapolates that a little bit more in mm-hmm. Fitchner's head saying like rationalizing why he believes she's already dead. And I think that's a mistake because I think <laughs> He doesn't know, mm-hmm. but he does know that if they go back, they're all fucking dead. I think he believes she's still alive, and I think she mm-hmm. is still alive, and that's going to fucking ruin the relationship between him and Rihanna. Mm-hmm. I think that is going to be the point where he fails his promise altogether in not hurting either of them. And keeping Because both Rihanna is going to be, yeah. Rihanna is going to find out, like, hey... She was still alive. We could have potentially saved her, and I would have done anything to try. Beyond just the the betrayal of choosing Severo over her, which I think that's the right choice either way. No matter what, I think 
the rationalization of him being an innocent, I don't know, is that also strictly audio drama? No, that's 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 textually in, well fuck. I think it's I think it's one of those moments where he turns down in that moment where he's asked and he looks at Severo and then makes the choice. So it's 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 an implication because yeah. of exactly what you're saying. Like yeah. it's an implication of his life. I just want to double check. But either way, I don't know if Rihanna sees it that way. Yeah. I feel like I keep saying her name differently. I don't know <laughs> if I am or not, but I feel it's like fine. I am. We only have to do this for another episode, so it's yeah, going to be okay. No, it's all good. <laughs> um, um, but it does not appear that that narration is internal. That is from the audio drama, not okay. from this. I I just feel like it was so not addressed that I think that's going to come into play later. This is kind of me meta meta scanning the the dialogue. But him mentioning so explicitly that she's already dead and there being no comeback from it mm-hmm. makes me think that that's coming into play. Yeah, I mean, they believe so firmly that she's dead that they go back to Triton. Yeah. And hold a hold a funeral. Yeah. That's true. And if she's alive the entire time, <clears throat> and even if they don't see each other again, but like... There's a video of her or something sent to Fitchner as a means of like taunting him. That's going to fuck things up. Yeah, it would be. It's it's going to be interesting. I've I have read the next one, um, of course, because that's kind of the concept of our podcast. Um, but <laughs> uh, there supposedly will be a third one uh, that okay. is supposedly it's a trilogy. That's supposed to be the plan. One assumes. So there are, again, details that are perhaps left, you know in the questionable zone, but mm-hmm. me thinks in, in comparison, me thinks Bryn dead, but yeah, fair enough. Yeah. That doesn't go against your theory or no, it doesn't it because again, that doesn't ruin the prediction for what Rihanna is going to do. Rihanna is going to do Rye, Anna, Rye, Anna, Rye, Anna. That's not what Rihanna is going to do. So, so the other thing I'm interested in seeing is how things change between this volume in the next because of what Mm -hmm. we talked about right at the beginning which is that this was released released segmented into six different chunks as comic books Mm -hmm. and the next was released as a standalone single release yeah there's they're still treated like separate issues inside of the book as though each chapter has its own cover but they were released yeah in one solid solid form solid format Cool, man. Do you have any other thoughts that you want to talk about with this? Any other lingering components? Oh, Obviously, man. at the very end, he says he's Ares and he's he's already tracking down potential revenge plots to go against Arturius. I mean, that's maybe maybe what we should we should talk about a little bit. But so that's something I'm really curious about. Um, mm-hmm. How much of a time jump there is there? Because from what we understand, not only is Quicksilver kind of involved in the inception of the sons of Ares. It seems like, and maybe this is just from the ego of Ares or of Quicksilver. It seems like it was kind of his idea. And that's if this is the actual timeline, that doesn't seem to be the case unless there's a big chunk missing between those two scenes where Quicksilver is the one kind of pulling the strings. But I don't know. 
we'll see. Yeah, adopting, I would say that the actually the thing in this that makes the least sense is adopting the name Ares almost seemingly out of context. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's it. Really like I don't I don't have any further thoughts really there outside of the fact that like the mask that he wears has been Ares mask and he has made mention of that over time that it's you know, like that's that was talked about over the course of the the graphic novel. Um, and is very clear looking at it that it's meant to be Ares, and so like adopting the moniker that is the mask makes sense, but doesn't have the same meaning yet. Ares is the god of sun, but also the god of rage. War, isn't he? war. Okay, god of war. Yeah, he is Mars and Ares. Ares is sun too, right? Apollo is sun. What else was yeah. Ares then? I felt like Ares was more than just war. No, Ares is pretty much courage and war. Um. Apollo, though, is like uh, sun and something else, though. Okay. Um, sun and archery. So, yeah. For comparison, but. Gotcha. Yeah, he drags out. He drags out the sun. Do, 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 do. Da, 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 da. I had a blast reading this though I did too man um okay let's let's go into this I don't know why I went into that little ELO diatribe there we'll ignore it um that's actually not yellow it's the Beatles anyway <laughs> fuck me How, how'd you feel about it overall would like final final thoughts I don't know overall enjoyed it really enjoyed mm-hmm. it but I think I just want it as a novel like ultimately, I feel like I would get more out of this as a novel, prequel novel, as opposed to graphic novel. It's a fun, very cool way to approach the story, and yeah. I appreciated certain aspects of seeing the razor and I don't know seeing seeing how combat can play out without the flowery blue language. But at the same time, I I feel like there's enough lacking that Pierce Brown does so well in his descriptions that I just kind of want that instead. That's fair. I feel like my end result, and this is also based on the fact that I've already read Wrath, just keep that in mind, and I haven't listened to the Wrath audio drama, is I think I would have liked it better if I wouldn't have listened to the audio drama, to be honest, because the audio drama adds enough where it felt like I wanted the book. And I didn't necessarily want the book just reading the graphic novel in my first pass, I could see I that was content with just the graphic novel. I do really like the audio drama, though, but it adds just enough that it makes me want the full narration, wants me to hear like to have all of this fleshed out even further as I think it should be like a novella or a book. You know, like that was my issue, I think, in post. I really like it, though, and I really like the audio drama. I just think that the graphic novel was spare enough that it it left it had this good tone it had good pace um that i ended up liking it more i think in the end than i like the audio drama but the audio drama is still a great representation and a great story it just added it added good things to a point at which it also tarnished the experience that i had with the graphic novel a little bit and that's not just to say like my one like big sticking point argument for a negative it, it's more that because they were able to add so many additional paragraphs of prose and be so descriptive, I like you was like, why isn't this a book? Mm-hmm. And some of that might be our like hybrid read listen strategy that we do for the you know that's a good point. series. 
Because so, let's be honest. I don't know. I feel like I've gotten into this a little bit, but the reason why I lean so heavily on the audiobooks is because I have to. Mm-hmm. If I like, I can't just go at one pass for the story for our mm-hmm. show. Like, I need to experience it multiple times. And I don't have enough time to do that dedicated on its own. Like, I need to be, like, overlapping my time somewhere. So I listen to the audiobook while I'm working or while I'm doing homework or while I'm doing other things. And I listen to it two, three, four times after reading it. Or sometimes at the same time, I'll read it and I'll listen to the audiobook. And that just drives home the information. But, like, that's that's why I do that. And I feel like that's probably kind of a unique situation that I'm in. And I think you kind of made me realize something in that the audio drama kind of feels like an audiobook. Mm-hmm. And it just feels like I'm not that big, well written book like most of Pierce's books are. Um, so it just felt lacking. Yeah. I think that that's I think that's ultimately what it comes down to. And again, I don't think that's even the fault of of the writers or anything like that. It's a combination of expectations that we have because of the rest of the books. So right for on its own, this is this is a great production. This is a good it's a good production. It's a good story. Um, But in continuation, it feels missing. It feels a little hollow. Um, But I think the graphic novel is does not suffer from that same problem. It does suffer from some shorthand. um, But having read the five books as many times and have gone through it in kind of our context, I didn't feel like I was missing much outside of the one chapter that you brought up about the the kids with with the uh, like early on in book two, I think, or chapter two in the Institute where the, where the two kids are running. And that was the most confusing scene in this entire thing to me. I was like, what the, f- who are, Oh, okay. <laughs> Guyana and yeah, Artrevious. Here'd be the recommendation um, for fans who maybe haven't listened to the audio drama. If you feel like you didn't get that much out of the, uh, the graphic novel, listen to the audio drama. I read a ton of comic books. I have for a very long time. PJ's actually read a decent number of comic books, um, compared to actual books. Um, so (laughs) I would, I would at the very least call us both comic book literate. So like, yeah, this is, you know, this is something that we could, we can both talk about in some, you know, fashion and capacity. Um, but if you're, if that's not your thing, the audio drama is probably great and would be the recommended way to go through this. So, I really if did enjoy. I did enjoy the audio drama. It's just yeah. the side by side comparison of the two, and reading them so closely together. It's like, what happened where, and yeah. also tying that into the fact that Pierce Brown definitely had a hand in the in the graphic novel, but it's kind of muddy on whether or not he did in the audio drama, and we're assuming he didn't. That's like that's where most of our confusion yeah. is coming from. And for the most part, and for the sake of the story itself that's being told, that doesn't fucking matter at all. You know? Right. Yeah. Not not critical, not crucial. So mm-hmm. definitely, definitely understood. Very cool. well Any, done else? audio drama. Like Oh yeah. Very well done. It was incredible. That Iron Rain right in the beginning was fucking amazing. Oh yeah. 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 
Like, I, I feel like we did enough shitting on the sort of canon aspect of the audio drama and like yeah. the differences between the two. Like, I really want to go on record and say I enjoyed the fuck out of the audio drama. Like, listening to it was very enticing. Yeah. I love If it. nothing else, the combination of the two mediums also, again, reiterated what could be for a TV show and the possibility and potential for combination of sound design visuals, mm-hmm. you know, that you get between these two, which was cool to think about. That is, sorry, one thing, no, one no. more complaint for the audio drama. Sound quality was kind of shit. Oh, mine was great. Oh, was it? I wonder if that was audiobook.com. Maybe that mine could sound be. great. Mine. There, mine there were occasions. There were a couple of hissy. voices. Mm, there were a couple of voices that were, um, that mics were not great on and they had a little bit of reverb that I could pick okay. up on. But that, that only happened a couple of times with some background actors and voices that were clearly added. And it, again, not their fault, but mine, know. mine felt like you were listening into it entirely as a phone call. In could s- that be because of the speed that you listen to it at? That could be. I would, I would wonder, but that, that could do it. Um, yeah. So don't take my word for it. Um, but, I just it, it felt could very the version. I, yeah. and very yeah. weird. Um, could could be any number of things, but um, it felt well done. It it it's not as good as the Neil Gaiman Sandman, which is fucking incredible. I think I made mention of that in the middle of the show, but like, oh my god, Sandman, fucking wild, fucking mm. whoa! I can't believe what they're doing over there. Um, but they're like that has probably twenty times the budget, like mcavoy is one of the leads pat oswalt's in it like there's so many incredible voice actors that are actual actors that are playing the parts fucking nutty um awesome anyway neither here nor there uh with that we talked about your prediction about eo or not eo excuse me (laughs) fucking brin um the other (laughs) the other martyr woman (laughs) um brio brio oh no (laughs) um but with that next week we're going to be reading volume two wrath so this one actually is subtitle comparatively this one doesn't have one um but we'll be reading volume two wrath um next week we'll we'll do the same thing we'll break down the audio drama and the graphic novel itself we'll do it the same style so does that sound good that sounds good to me Cool. Is there is right. there any format change that you'd, in retrospect, like to make, or are you cool no. with the way we did it? I'm cool with the way we did it because I thought I think that it, I think that the fun part about the way that we did this is while we had issues with the audio drama, um, we also were able to compare the two side by side effectively. I felt mm-hmm. so it made for I think a good listen and a good pitch as to why one might consider listening to the one or the other or might, you know, not everyone has the money to do both. So like pick what you will for whatever reason you will. Um, that's yeah, part of the reason we're here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So next week is volume one of sons varies. And then at volume. the same time, volume two, excuse me, volume two of sons varies at the same time, Mistborn episode zero is going to be coming out and we will begin our journey into Scadriel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Episode zero won't have any reading involved. It's just kind of some pre-predictions. It'll be quick. It's like, yeah, we, I think recorded. It was like 40 minutes. It'll probably be 30 edited. Maybe. Yeah. Um, I still but have to edit a quick that. intro. 
a quick intro. We, yeah. we recorded that a while ago. We did, and you still haven't read the first section for test material purposes. I still haven't Because I need to know if I can speed <laughs> it up. So zero. Cool. Yeah, right. that's that's it. Uh, so, again, volume two, and also look out for the Mistborn episode. They should be coming out at the same time. So, next Thursday, double header, double feature. There we go. Super cool. Way to kick off. I think this episode comes out in December, PJ. Uh, that's Hellerpod. This is that. No, the Mistborn episodes will come out in December, though. December 2nd. And volume two of Sons of Aries. Cool. Cool. So that's where we'll leave you for this week. Andrew, Tim, our producers, are wonderful, awesome people, and they do a whole lot of work, and you should really visit what they do. They put together our show notes. Actually, we do that. Do we do that? I we we put together I put together the show notes. You Prosslin say we, does that. I do that. Prosslin <laughs> does that. But uh they do everything that the show notes link to, which would be the schedule, the Patreon, the previous episodes, the website, our social media stuff. Uh, I do the social media stuff, but, you know, I don't know. You know, it's cool. Um, they make our Andrew, show sound good. You're hearing Andrew's work right now. <laughs> Andrew, Andrew, without Andrew, we would sound like hot garbage. And sometimes we still do, but that's uh, not of Andrew's Unrelated. fault. That's just because we are garbage <laughs> human beings. Uh, <laughs> fantastic uh if you haven't already leave us and any podcast you listen to a five-star review spotify also has a new notification feature of which is very important for referrals it's a little bell on the episode it provides you with a notification whenever we have a new episode that goes live you folks know we've got one coming out to you every thursday at least maybe we might have a you know a bonus episode in the future that episode zero we talked about maybe maybe there'll be another one at some point down the road you'll never know unless you click that bell then you'll know you'll know when we launch new episodes outside of our normal schedule so five star reviews on apple podcasts and google one google play whatever it's called now and uh yeah yeah that's it thank you so much yeah thank you all <laughs> <laughs>